From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. It's week two of Sound Opinions Summer School, and we're giving you a masterclass on soul of the 70s. First, we revisit our classic album dissection of Marvin Gaye's groundbreaking 1971 album, What's Going On? We'll discuss the album's impact and how its sounds and its messages live on. We'll also talk about a signature sound in soul, R&B, and psychedelic rock, the wah-wah pedal. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we are holding week two of our Sound Opinions Summer School. We're putting on our professor hats and revisiting some of our favorite albums to explain why they matter. Today, we're looking at the Marvin Gaye classic, What's Going On? And later on, we'll discuss the unique presence of the wah-wah pedal in 70s music by artists including Gaye, as well as The Temptations and more. But first, What's Going On? was released in May 1971. It remains one of the textbook examples of a great soul record. Uh, culmination of a period in Marvin Gaye's life which was very troubled, Jim. This man was probably as reliable a hit maker as Motown had during the 60s. He was one of the most versatile singers they had. He could go up-tempo and rough. He could sing the sweet ballads. He could do duets. He was all over the charts in the 60s with, with songs like Hitchhike and Can I Get a Witness, Ain't That Peculiar, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. series of duets with Kim Weston and Mary Wells, and finally Tammy Terrell. He was a superstar. And and a multi-instrumentalist, as versatile on on piano and drums as anyone of the great Motown session players. Absolutely. He he could get down there on the floor with the musicians and work with them in addition to being the star singer in the Motown stable. Now, there's several things that occurred in Marvin Gaye's life in the late 60s that led up to the making of what's going on and uh, heavily influenced its tone and made it such a dramatic departure from what he had done before. To me, I think the turning point in many ways for, for Marvin Gaye's career was, first of all, meeting and then singing with Tammy Terrell, this great partnership of all the duet partners he had. There seemed to be a connection there, unlike any of the others. And they had some marvelous songs. Your Precious Love in 67, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, which I think was the culmination of their uh, partnership. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Ain't nothing like the real thing. No, no. But uh, Tammy Terrell had been suffering migraine headaches for, for a number of months and finally collapsed in Marvin's arms on stage in the summer of 67. Uh, She was diagnosed with brain cancer and had numerous operations thereafter, eventually dying in 1970. And Marvin never recovered from that. In many ways, people who knew him 
uh, say he was a changed man after that. There was two sides to Marvin Gaye's personality. One was that he was the loyal soldier, the loyal servant of Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown Records. Uh, Barry was his friend, but also his mentor. And if Barry wanted something, Marvin was going to give it to him. Even if it meant he had to sing this cheesy song, Mm -hmm. but it was going to be a top 10 hit, he would do it because he wanted to, to make Barry Gordy happy. You know, there was an additional uh, layer to their relationship in that uh, Marvin was married to Barry's older sister, Anna. They were family. The other Marvin was the moody guy who would go off by himself and not be seen for days, weeks, months, sometimes at a time. He liked to get high, you know, and he thought of himself as an artist, not just a, uh, a soldier on the label, but an artist who had a vision of what he wanted to do in the future that may have been very different from what Motown wanted out of Well, there was a year-long uh, you know, retreat, pretty much, Gay stepping out of the spotlight before what's going on. And it included, according to some biographies, a suicide attempt. It was Barry Gordy's father that pulled the handgun out of his hand. Yes. Uh, you know, a troubled soul, without a doubt. And one of his last big hits during this great period of success in the 60s was with a song written by Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong. Uh, Strong had been one of the key Motown songwriters for a number of years already, but Whitfield was a relatively new voice in that great stable of songwriters at Motown, and a strong one. He and Strong co-wrote a song called I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And while uh, Marvin Gaye was the first to record the song in early 67, his moody version was originally passed up for release by the label. Gladys Knight and the Pips, instead, released their upbeat version first in the fall of 67, while Marvin's came out a year later. Marvin remade the song in his own uh, image uh, soon after, and it became an even bigger hit once he recorded it. Uh, A number one single, uh, absolutely ruled uh, in 1968 on the charts. It took me by surprise, I must say, when I found out yesterday, don't you know that I heard it through the grapevine? Not much longer would you be mine? Oh, I heard it through the grapevine. Oh, I'm just about to lose my mind, honey, honey. And that moodiness, that brooding nature of Marvin's version, you know, this whole notion of people are out to get me, people are talking about me, you know, and I don't like it. It fit the mood of the times. I mean, we're talking about a period here, you know, we're coming off uh, Martin Luther King's assassination. It threw Marvin into a deep tailspin. From 1969 through 71, Marvin Gaye did not perform on a concert stage. Right. He spent a lot of time on his own, and the label is wondering, what's going on, man? You know, like yeah. They were literally, yeah. literally asking him that question. Are you going to make any more music? The word was that Marvin was sitting around with these, hanging out with these football players in the Detroit Lions team, and he suddenly became enamored with this idea of becoming a professional athlete. Uh, so he was dabbling with the idea of playing football. He was arguing a lot with Anna, you know, his wife. They weren't getting along. That marriage, which started in 63... The couple separated formally in 73, eventually was divorced a few years later. So that's going on in his life. You know, the critical shorthand, uh, Greg, sometimes is, is that Marvin got political with what's going on. 
But he'd been thinking about these things for years. Uh, there's a famous quote of him talking about the 1965 riots in Watts uh, as a pivotal moment in his life. And he said, with the world exploding around me, how was I supposed to keep singing love songs? And then he covers, and it becomes a hit in the UK in 1970, Abraham, Martin, and John, the song about the assassinations of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and John Kennedy, uh, popularized originally by Dion, but Marvin Gaye puts his own stamp on that song. Has anybody here seen my old friend Martin? Well, and not not to mention the fact, Jim, that uh, a lot of black music had changed. You know, the Motown yes. sound that had been sort of upbeat and unifying had grown darker. Uh, I'd, I'd mentioned uh, Norman Whitfield earlier in, in the context of writing I Heard It Through the Grapevine. This guy, you know, simplified uh, the Motown sound in ways, two or three chords, a lot of funk, a lot of attitude. Those songs that he was writing for The Temptations, Cloud Nine, mm-hmm. Psychedelic Shack, yeah. Ball of Confusion, right. Smiling Faces Sometimes for the Undisputed Truth. These were not happy songs. Right. These were songs about people who are angry, people who are oppressed. This was an extension of what Curtis Mayfield was doing with the impressions. And then Curtis came out with his 1970 solo debut, Curtis, and the first song on it is called Don't Worry, If There's a Hell Below, We're All Going to Go. Right. I mean, this is dark, dark stuff. Suddenly, black music is taking this turn. After Martin Luther King's assassination, the rioting in the streets, this is starting to be reflected back in the way music was being constructed by African Americans. So another critical shorthand is that Marvin Gaye's the guy who made black music political. Clearly, this was already in the air, and lots of artists were moving in that direction. He just takes it further than everybody else. I think it's it's interesting, though, to note that the real nugget that begins what's going on starts with a member of the Four Tops. Yeah. Obi Benson, May 1969, the Four Tops are on tour. Uh, and Obi Benson witnesses this uh, beating, uh, an act of police brutality on anti-war protesters in Berkeley's People's Park. It's a, it, it becomes known as Bloody Thursday. He's disgusted. And he says, I saw this and started wondering, What's, what's going on? What is happening here? What is this about? Why are they sending kids uh, from, from throughout the U.S., halfway around the world, and, and they're losing their lives? Why are they attacking? And then we're attacking other kids who are against that in the street. He begins asking these questions. And it doesn't start with a statement, this song. It starts with a question. He goes back to Detroit after this Four Tops tour, and he sits down with uh, one of the Motown staff songwriters, Al Cleveland, and they write a song. They take it to Marvin Gaye. Gay is thinking of using it for a, another uh, group, uh, but they convince him, no, 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 you should keep this, you should sing it, and Gay rewrites the lyrics. Gay's rewriting the lyrics, and uh, it was interesting that to, to read the quotes from Benson after uh, Marvin, uh, you know, started tinkering with the song. He said he made it more ghetto, Yeah, you know? Uh, and it, as the song was being recorded in Motown, suddenly Marvin's inspired, I got to get this down. 
he is producing this track. He'd gotten some confidence as a producer working with this group called The Originals and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this session myself. I don't need any help from the, the Motown stable of producers. One of the key changes was he comes out from behind the mixing board. The producer of the record is also singing the record, and he's sitting in the middle of the musicians on the floor of right. the Motown studios. Apparently, according to the musicians who were there, big cloud of smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not going to say exactly who was where, who it was emanating from. But there's, there's a lot a big, of drinking. There's a lot of pot smoking. Big cloud of smoke in the in the in the room at the time. Marvin at the piano at the center of it all, wearing that knit cap that was his trademark around that time. And, and, and writing, basically working the, the Funk Brothers, the great Motown rhythm section, through what he wanted here. The great moment in that song, the saxophone that weaves its way throughout the song, mm-hmm. was essentially Eli Fontaine warming up. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't even playing on the song at the time. Doesn't think it's a Mar- tape. Marvin says, you know, just go over there and warm up, get ready. Marvin's rolling the tape. Mm-hmm. He knows mm-hmm. what he wants. He hears it, he goes... You're, you know, and so Eli Fontaine comes over to join the session. He goes, "Okay, I'm ready, boss." Marvin goes, "No, go home. You're done. Yeah, we already got we, it. We got what we needed." But Greg, even before you hear that saxophone, you hear this crazy party. People talking with one another, whooping it up, uh, shouts of joy. We wanted to learn more about how that idea came together and the recording of the whole title track. So we thought we'd talk to someone who was there. As we mentioned earlier, Marvin had thoughts of becoming a football player, and he was hanging out with members of the Detroit Lions, including Lem Barney, a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Lem contributed uh, talking during that party scene and backup vocals to the title track, and he even earned a gold record for his contributions. Lem, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you so very much. Uh, Tell us how you and Marvin Gaye became friends. He used to come to a lot of the games, right? Yes, he did. He certainly did. Him, along with Smokey Robinson, would support the Detroit Lions by coming down to Tiger Stadium, and afterwards we'd go over to Petey Larco's restaurant, win, lose, or draw, and they would be there. And uh, most of the teammates got a chance to meet him and hobnob with him, and even the coaches. So, Lem, Marvin asked you and a few other Detroit athletes to participate in the recording of what's going on. Tell us a little bit about what that day was like. We were over at Marvin's house, and he said, look, Let's go down to the Motown studio and do this recording. And he had checked with Barry, and Barry gave him an okay, uh, let's do it. And uh, we went down to the studio, and about a half an hour later, we was finished. We must have did about nine or ten takes. and uh, Half an Bobby, hour? <laughs> half an hour and nine or ten runs through the song. Yes, but, I mean, we had done a lot of, a lot of other training over at his house. Ah, okay. And finally, at, in the studio, about the tenth, Taking, he said, this is it. So the sounds of the party that kick off the title track, what's going on, that's not faking it. You guys are having fun in the studio. Absolutely, big time. (laughs) And then I've heard, and you have to confirm if this is true, there's that wild, trilling uh, kind of sound. of it. That's you? Yes. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. Hey, what's happening? Brother, what's up? This is a good party, man. I When uh, you were working with him, did you see a different side of Marvin? You know, the, the Marvin in the, in the recording studio, the guy making these records versus the guy you saw after the football games or in a, in a more casual atmosphere? Oh, he was very serious about it. I mean, you know, it was just like if you listen from the earliest start, from his earliest record to his last record, he never would put anything out till he felt it was solid. And uh, he was just a joyful singer. I look at my gold record from time to time, and 
you know, wish his soul will forever rest in peace. Lem, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, a great football player and uh, and a musician with a gold record to his credit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions, Lem. Thank you so very much. Good speaking with you guys. So the last piece of the song, Jim, is he's recorded the rhythm track with the Funk Brothers. And now, he's got that saxophone. And now he's ready to put the final touch on, and that is the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Again, not traditional Motown, right? David Vandepit, uh, the arranger uh, working with the Detroit Symphony, comes into the studio and they layer these strings over the top of the arrangement. And there are tears streaming down Marvin's face as he hears the playback, realizing this is what I wanted, this is what this album should be. Those black bottoms, as he calls them, with the European classical strings over the top, and then his voice at the center, orchestrated to sound like three or four Marvins. You know, there's a conversation going on with Marvin using those multitude of voices that he had within him. The rough Marvin, the sweet Marvin, the falsetto Marvin, conversing with one another in the middle of the track. This was the new sound that Marvin Gaye wanted. We've been talking about what's going on, the single and the title track. When we come back from a short break, we'll talk about the reception of the song and dig into what's going on, the album. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We have our professor costumes on, and we're doing a classic album (laughs) dissection of literally one of the greatest albums in in pop music history, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, released in May 71. Greg, we heard about the recording of that incredible single, the title track, What's Going On, uh, a, a watershed moment in music history, and the chief of the label, Barry Gordy, who has now left Detroit, relocated to California, sits down and Marvin plays it for him. And this man, to whom Gay has been loyal for so many years, a team player, he's married to his sister, right, Mm -hmm. says, and I quote, this is the worst thing (laughs) I have ever heard in my life. (laughs) Yeah, I think Barry sort of missed the boat there, but it was so (laughs) radical. It, it really was. It was a radical sound. And, and let me tell you how radical this was at the time, because Motown just simply wasn't making records this way. They had been extremely successful with a variation on a formula based on a three-minute song with a verse, a chorus, a bridge, and they were very good at it. Now, Norman Whitfield started expanding the sound with The Temptations, but now Marvin was taking it in a completely different direction. Um, first of all, he was going back to his roots as a singer, doo-wop, gospel, you could hear that, that tone in his voice. It was heavily influenced by those particular sounds from his childhood. Then there was this jazz element that he wanted yeah. to introduce. And the Motown guys, the Funk Brothers, loved it because they were all jazz players at heart, and they never really got a chance to improvise. They couldn't cut loose. Yeah, the way Marvin was allowing them to do. 
Then adding the strings on top of that, another layer, uh, was a master stroke. And when you hear of the rhythm tracks, mostly Motown was about that banging, driving uh, rhythm. You backed up with the, the hand bottom. Uh, yeah, layers of layers of rhythm. Marvin pulled it back a little bit. There was a lot of Latin percussion on this record, a lot of hand percussion. Um, so there was more room for the instruments to float around rather than to this hard, banging funk sound that was typical of Motown. One problem, Jim. What's Going On is finally released in mm -hmm. early 71. It goes to number two. And Barry Gordy goes, uh, we need an album to go with this song, now that you've yeah. proven me wrong. And Marvin goes, uh, uh, yeah, I got a few, <laughs> I, I got a few things laying around. I got around. some stuff in the hopper, but... He had some fragments laying around, and in a 10-day recording session in March with the Funk Brothers, with the string section, with Marvin's beautiful orchestrations and uh, ideas floating around in his head at the center of the, of the recording session, they came up with what became the What's Going On record. I think, uh, you know, when he put that What's Going On uh, title track right at the top for a reason, and then it segues right into What's Happening, Brother. And I finally got a sense of listening to the record again of what he was going for, you know, the party atmosphere that he had with his friends in the studio creating on what's going on. So you've got this very political song, very socially conscious song, very sad and troubled song. At the same time, there's this party going on. What he's recreating there is his brother and his friends coming back to Detroit from Vietnam. Yeah. And, you know, there's the, the welcoming, welcome home party. And that's what's going on in these tracks. It's like, hey, what's going on? The, these, these guys are coming back from Vietnam and they're staggered by what they see. Can't find no work, can't find no job, my friend. Money is tied up and it's ever been. Say, man, I just don't understand what's going on across this land. Oh, what's happening, brother? Yeah. I mean, what, what happened? What happened to Detroit? What happened to the country while we were gone for these three years? We, we thought we were fighting to save the country, or at least ennoble it, and it's, and it's gotten worse. Uh, racism, unemployment, you know, the ability to get a job, the violence in the streets, it's just nearly as bad as it is back in Vietnam. The heroin plague, flying high in the friendly sky, is about the heroin ec epidemic taking over poor African-American communities. Uh, you know, one of the lyrics, I know I'm hooked, my friend, to the boy who makes slaves out of men. Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant uh, little twist there. Uh, you know, Fly the Friendly Skies was an airline's uh, tag. And, and much like uh, Kurt Cobain took uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit from a deodorant, you know, Marvin is taking that uh, and, and turning it. it. It's not a celebration of being high. Save the children, right? This emotional, heartbreaking plea uh, to, to remember disadvantaged kids, uh, poor white kids, poor black kids, save them. Who really cares? Who's willing to try to save a world that is destined to die? So he's casting, you know, above and beyond 
the plight of Vietnam veterans. Uh, he's looking at, at what's left of America in 1971 that people are coming home to. Yeah, Save the Children, Jim, is a really moving song. And at first I thought, oh, you know, what a cliche, you know, Save the Babies. But it's almost like as you listen to it in the context of the songs that have come before it, you know, the conversations with his brother and about the devastation they're coming back to in their home country, the, the drug use that has uh, gone rampant in Flying High. Save the Children is almost like, a, a, you know, a, a person uh, from the deck of the Titanic as it's going down. You know, we can't save ourselves, but at least let's see if we can save the next generation. You know, and, and it's a desperate fight for, for the survival of, of the human race in a lot of ways. When I look at the world, when I look at the world, fills me with sorrow it fills me with sorrow little children today children today really gonna suffer tomorrow really suffer tomorrow well we each want to highlight a, a tune I want to dive deep for a minute on mercy mercy me the ecology Whoa. Oh. Here is one of the most ahead-of-its-times uh, songs in the history of pop music, uh, in the history of protest music, right? Marvin Gaye, in 1971, is talking about the environment. It is beginning to become an issue, okay? Uh, you know, we remember Richard Nixon for a lot of things. But actually, in January 1970, he created the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. But... Um, you know, the environment is not a major issue for many people. The war is much more pressing. The war on poverty continues, right? Gay is there ahead of time. Um, another story about Barry Gordy being out of touch here. When he heard that Marvin had this song, Mercy, Mercy, Me, the Ecology, Barry asked uh, what the word ecology even meant. Hmm. Right? Barry does not emerge. I mean, Barry was a visionary genius, right? right? But it doesn't emerge as very in touch with uh, Marvin Gaye. You know, so the lyrics are extraordinary, incredibly poetic. Mercy, mercy me, all the things they, what they used to be. Where did the blue skies go? The music is extraordinary. One of Gay's, I think, most heartfelt vocal performances. Uh, you know, you really hear that voice. I, I don't know if it was ever uh, better. Whoa, mercy, mercy me. All things and what they used to be now. Oil wasted on the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. Oh, oh, mercy, mercy, me. All things and what they used to be lost. Radiation underground and in the sky. Animals and birds who live nearby are lives. It's amazing how timely so much of this record is. You know, the first Earth Day was in April of 1970. Right. You know, so these these themes were in the air, and Marvin was picking up on them. It truly was like a, a newspaper bulletin. A, you know, a a, a, a six o'clock newscast for a generation. I'm, I'm fascinated by the way he would juxtapose these beautiful hymn-like tracks, like uh, Mercy, Mercy Me, 
one of the centerpieces of the album is immediately preceded by a song called God is Love, which is right. a very short song. It's like right. a prayer. And the song that I want to highlight, Inner City Blues Make Me Want to Holler, is preceded by Holy Holy. Another, It's another hymn, but it goes straight into this urban hell. He's juxtaposing the spiritual with the reality of what's going down here on, on the planet and in ways picking up on things that the staple singers were doing and sort of saying, wait a minute, we're not just waiting for the afterlife. There's a life right. we got to get through here first before we can move on. I was wondering, my friend, how long it would take <laughs> you to mention the Staples singers. Well, of course, you wrote a great biography of Mavis Staples. But that notion of we may be singing a celebratory song, right. but that doesn't mean we are blind to all of the, 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 the violence and ugliness surrounding us. And as with many uh, things in this on this record, this uh, the song Inner City Blues, uh, Make Me Want to Holler in parentheses, uh, almost started off as a joke. One of the Motown staff writers, James Nix, who Marvin had really started to rely upon, they'd worked together on these tracks with the originals, which were very, very important in laying the groundwork for this album in terms of the voicings and the tone of those songs, uh, were joking about the fact that they didn't like to pay taxes. You know? Right, right, right. We, we, we <laughs> who just, does? We just don't. We're, we're overtaxed and we hate paying the taxes. And they were joking about this and said, you know, the song started out at this, as this kind of self-referential complaint but then it expanded from there. Some really uh, telling lines, you know, the moon landings, all these things. What's going? But you're spending all this money to send men to the moon, and meanwhile, Detroit is crumbling before our eyes. There's this great line that opens the song, Rockets, Moonshots, Spend It on the Have-Nots. You know, the, the line later in the song, Trigger-happy policing, panic is spreading, God knows where we're heading. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like a Kendrick Lamar record? These songs are still very apt for what's going on in, in our cities, and uh, Marvin Gaye was not afraid to talk about them in songs. At the time... This, these were very controversial subjects, and I think the one thing that Barry Gordy hated was controversy. He wanted to sell a lot of records, and this was going to prevent him yeah. from selling records. We you can know? never forget that this was the man who started a charm school, mm -hmm. you know, for his stable of artists, teaching them how to, you know, how to dress, how to groom themselves, how to present themselves on stage, how to walk. So the record, you know, to complete the package, Jim, uh, again, radical moves, and this should be noted, the fact that the musicians who performed on the record are actually named in the liner notes to that record. That was the first time... Motown had extended this courtesy to those great musicians. Well, you know, it's the gay doing it. Yeah, the bassist James Jamerson, you know, being name-checked on an album cover. I mean, the guy basically built that sound, uh, right. the foundation of the Motown sound with his bass. The lyrics were printed on a Motown album for the first time. Uh, again, an indication that Marvin Gaye uh, had a little bit of clout, and he was going to use it because he thought it was important that that sort of information get out there. And finally, that album cover, 
You have a pensive Marvin with that upturned collar in the rain, looking out over the horizon mm-hmm. as if he's looking to the next world, something beyond the world we're living in. Um, so the, everything about this package spoke the future new I'm a radical shift in in tone and the way this artist was presenting himself. Marvin Gaye had truly become a major, major artist. If he was one already, but here was another facet to that personality. So what's going on finally comes out, Greg, in May 1971, that cover you were just describing. Marvin's looking ahead. People are paying attention. Now, you know, for Be- Barry Gordy, for all his doubting of this record, it spawns three top ten singles. Mm-hmm. It is a huge commercial success, but also significantly a tremendous artistic success. And his peers are listening, right? Stevie Wonder, who happens to be uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, label mate on Motown, uh, just turns 21. His contract is up. He looks at what Marvin's uh, getting away with, you know, (laughs) a top 10 pop album, number one R&B that basically Marvin Gaye produces, sings, writes on his own without any influence from Barry Gordy or the the Motown regulars. Says, I want a piece of that action. Uh, I want complete artistic control, just like Marvin was able to wrest Mm -hmm. from the label at considerable with considerable difficulty, and gets it, uh, because otherwise they're going to lose him. And he reels off a string of masterpieces in the mold of what's going on. Music of My Mind in 72, Talking Book, Inner Visions, Fulfilling This's First Finale, Songs in the Key of Life. Would these albums have existed if what's going on had not been recorded first? Uh, I don't think so. I think Stevie took a cue from the great Marvin Gaye there. But we are sick and tired of hearing the song Aretha Franklin, titling an album, Young, Gifted, and Black. Uh, The staple singers with B-Altitude, you know, respect yourself, I'll take you there. They were already writing songs about this, but they felt emboldened to make an entire album uh, based around these themes. Parliament Funkadelic, going from the streets right to the, you know, outer space. Yeah, the spaceship, uh, you know, the concepts, you know, let's make a whole album based around a theme. Uh, George Clinton was definitely taking cues from Marvin Gaye. Al Green making the Bell album, uh, emboldened to do a concept-level work uh, in at album length, you know, transitioning the single from being the centerpiece of African-American pop music to the album being the centerpiece of it. Now, these kind of things had been done before in African-American music, obviously. I mean, you you go back to something like Duke Ellington's Black, Brown, and Beige album in the Mm. 40s, or or Coltrane with A Love Supreme. Ah. You know, these are spiritual tone poems that are album length. And clearly Gay was taking some cues from that. But for an African-American pop album uh, to be addressing these themes at album length was unique. And, And Marvin, I think, really paved the way for generations of artists to do the same. That wraps up our classic album dissection of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Do you have an opinion on this album? Marvin Gaye, or anything in the musical universe, call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. Coming up, we continue our summer school session by talking about the wah-wah pedal and its iconic sound. That's after the break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott. Today we've got another installment of the feature we're calling Instrumental. This is where we take a look at a piece of gear used in music history and explore where it came from and how it works. Today we're talking about the wah-wah pedal. 
the building block of psychedelic rock, funk, and reggae. What does the wah add to rock and blues? Greg, uh, that wonderful sense of distortion, of wobbliness, of you being on the deck of a boat, <laughs> going up and down in the waves, or your head being there. Uh, I think that's what the wah is, uh, to me, at its best. I think it works uh, well in blues. I think less so with a lot of rock and roll, uh, but psychedelia and funk, heck yeah. And you want to take it with you to the heartland of the winter. But its creation back in the mid-60s was the product of an accident. Daniel Escariza and Shelby Pollard of the Chicago Music Exchange joined us uh, to break down the history of the wah, and Daniel explained its origins. The wawa pedal, the wawa effect on guitar, is based on a sound that horn players would get when they would put their mutes in and out of their horns. Uh, they could get like a weeping sound by varying the, the how deep they would put their, the mutes uh, in them. The wah pedal simulates that, but electronically by varying the, the, the frequencies of this filter. Since the whole mute thing happened on horns, they added, you know, a wah pedal components to organs. And in fact, before the production models went out in 66, there were people who were modifying organ parts and running guitars through those to kind of get that effect already. But yeah, Chet Atkins actually is one of the people who, there are a couple recordings where he has some wah-sounding things happening um, pretty early on. I read that it was, yeah, from modifying a Farfisa part and running it through that. The inventor of the wah pedal, Bradley Plunkett, was an engineer at the Thomas Organ Company, but the pedal was actually created because of a glitch he found. Daniel explains. There was a, a, a circuit, uh, a section of a circuit in an amplifier uh, made by Vox that was malfunctioning and it had some sort of issue uh, that he thought was musical, so he had his friend come over and actually play saxophone through it because it reminded him of this effect that horn players can uh, can can do with their mutes. It was actually first marketed as an effect for horns. Uh, it was not originally intended for guitar at first. real difference is that instead of varying the filter with the pedal, you're varying it with the opening of your mouth. And then eventually uh, uh, people realize, well, wait a minute, this will actually be really cool if you run guitar through it as, as the guitar became a more prominent instrument in pop music. Um, and it was repackaged and re-engineered to work better with the frequency range of the guitar. And they released the, the first uh, versions of this in 1966. Vox's fabulous new wah-wah pedal opens the door to a variety of great new sounds. When the foot is rocked forward, the guitar sound becomes sharp. As the foot is rocked back, the sound becomes mellow. 
So how does a wah pedal work? Here's Daniel again. A wah-wah pedal, I guess a, a simple way of explaining it is that it, it's just an equalizer that you can control with your foot. It's a pretty aggressive equalizer. So if you can think of something that has an equalizer, like a car stereo, for example. You can boost your lows, your, your basses. And the way the sunlight plays upon her head. You can boost your highs if you want more trebles, right? So imagine that you can control that equalization, but with your foot, so that when uh, you know the the wah wah pedal is closed or all the way towards you, uh, all that's kind of really coming through is bass. And as you open it up or as you push it out, uh, it opens up the frequencies and suddenly starts allowing more high frequencies to come through. And and you can rock it forward and back and and get a wah wah kind of sound. Now, can you do one that's wah, wah? <laughs> and as soon as they came out, uh, players were very eager to incorporate them into their sound because it has a very, you know, human quality to it. It has this kind of, you can have this weeping quality to your guitar, and uh, this can be famously heard in, in Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child, for example. And now, guitarist Shelby Pollard from Chicago Music Exchange playing Jimmy's famous riff from 1968's Voodoo Child, only without the wah pedal. Shelby says that the wah adds something special to melodically simple riffs. Um, so it's not just used for solos. It can also be used for just basic chord structures. In, in some other examples where you're just playing a single note, as soon as you add that wah filter into it, it becomes a completely different part. It's almost like a vibrato or, or tremolo, like a tremolo, um, where it, it, it adds that rhythmic dynamic in and out of, of the effect. Other early adopters of the wah were rockers like Eric Clapton and bluesmen like Earl Hooker.
For me, it was in the 1970s with the advent of psychedelic soul that the wah-wah pedal really came into its own. Uh, the famous Motown guitarist Dennis Coffey used the pedal on a series of records produced by Norman Whitfield. I'd say every one of them a masterpiece, especially 1969's Cloud Nine by The Temptations. I love the psychedelic soul era of The Temps. That's an early example of the soulful wah sound. In soul and funk, the wah is often played with an emphasis on the rhythm rather than uh, the tone or a lead. Eventually, another Motown guitarist, and here's the guy who really sets the tone, Melvin Wah Wah Watson Reagan, picked up the Wah as well, and that earned him his nickname. Over at Stax Records, guitarist Charles Skip Pitts, another master, used the wah pedal for the iconic guitar riff in that Oscar-winning theme from Shaft in 1971. You can hear it in your head right now, right? Oh, yeah. The use of the wah in that song adds a critical element to a fairly simple riff. Here's Daniel again from the Chicago Music Exchange. The wah pedal has this rhythmic, expressive uh, element to it that, that without it, um, you know, the guitar just wouldn't have by itself. Like if we listen to the shaft theme without wah pedal, it sounds like this. And then as soon as you add the wah pedal, comes to life. <laughs> it sounds like a really angry cat. Kind of. What's going on, really? You know, the wah pedal continued to play a really important role in funk and soul throughout the 70s. Sly Stone, a master of it, and the immortal Curtis Mayfield. He made a lot of use of that wah pedal. But by the mid-70s, the wah-wah had essentially fallen out of favor in rock, but the pedal was playing a key role in reggae music of the time. Uh, we're talking about people like Bob Marley and the Wailers, guitarist Junior Marvin and L. Anderson, both using the wah extensively on songs like Exodus and Jamming. And on those tracks, the pedal was layered over and over to add depth to the tracks. Thank you. 
And the legendary Peter Tosh and reggae session guitarist Mikey Chung also used the wah-wah pedal, augmenting it with echo effects, making it a key element in the trippy sounds of the dub genre of reggae, where you were floating in space. The wah wasn't exclusively the domain of guitar players. The pedal was also experimented with by Miles Davis. Most famously, he used it with his horn for his avant-garde work on On the Corner. You know what, Greg, I made a crack earlier uh, that the wah is uh, uh, not uh, at its best in rock and roll. Let's put Eric Clapton aside for a minute. And the Stooges. I think uh, Ron Ashton used wah-wah wonderfully with the Stooges. But too many rock and rollers uh, just rely on it as a gimmick when they have nothing to say in a guitar solo. They're not using it well for texture. They just want to put a lot of crap on a mediocre solo. Um, The other thing, of course, we haven't mentioned is another genre, which would be porno soundtrack music. And probably (laughs) we shouldn't even go near that. But let me just say, there's a lot of wah-wah in in porn soundtracks. You know, it's a tool uh, that can be used well and not so well. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, not so well, probably way outweighs the well in as terms with, of rock history. As with anything, yeah, yes. absolutely. You know, sampling the kind, same kind of thing, anything you can name, any kind of tool uh, that enhances or detracts from a song can be abused, except for the cowbell. And that may—that's going to have to be an instrumental <laughs> episode soon. Never too much cowbell, but you know, absolutely, the history of funk music, the history of R and B in the '70s, especially, would not have been the same without it. It's a critical piece of the evolution of funk, and I would. Say say that's the golden age of this particular effect. I got one and I'm a drummer. Yeah, it's true. You do have a wah on your what? I have a I don't know where I acquired oh. this wah, but somebody left it in a rehearsal space okay. years ago and I've had it ever since. And as always, we want to hear from you. What song do you think makes good use of the wah? Give us a call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Good times with the wah, Greg. (laughs) What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig deep once again, dig out some buried treasures. These are songs that are flying underneath the mainstream radar, but we think you should know about. You can download or stream Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Shelby Pollard and Daniel Escauriza at the Chicago Music Exchange, as well as to Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Sound Opinions, as always, is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. This is George. I live on uh, Bainbridge Island, Washington. 
I'm calling about your episode Best Albums So Far of 2019. I would like to nominate Craig Finn, I Need a New War, the third of a really incredible trilogy of albums. These albums are completely different than Finn's work with uh, The Hold Steady um, or really anything else in rock. I compare them more to a great collection of short stories. The songs are character-driven, specific, and always heartbreaking. If he burns the bed again Then I'll just apologize But now he knows just how To say he's sorry And by now he knows He shouldn't worry Should forgive a man the morning Lay for work while he's still sleeping Put a 20 on the counter With a note there right beside it This is half a decent day That's pretty good stuff, and I would put forward that no one else is doing anything like it right now. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. This is Joel from Durham, North Carolina, and I'm just responding to songs that made me the first song that I can think of for me, it sounds silly, but Back in Black by ACDC. I believe I was in fifth grade, and when I heard that song, I mean, it kind of blew my mind and propelled me into listening to music in different ways. It wasn't like Led Zeppelin or Kiss or something like that. It was entertaining, and it was hard. It was like punk rock, but it wasn't punk rock. Those Australians really set the ball rolling for me when it comes to just kind of listening to things differently than I did before. So I appreciate you guys. Keep up the good work. Hi, this is Michael from Lawrence, Kansas. Just listened to your uh, Neil Young slash 12-string guitar episode and really enjoyed both portions of it. And the uh, 12-string guitar tune that I thought of that is definitely not jangle pop and is actually pretty aggressive and kind of angst-ridden is Answering Machine by The Replacements from Let It Be. really great song i had never heard anything like it before at the time i first heard it and it was definitely something that changed some of my attitudes opinions ideas about music and about what could be done with with just a guitar love you guys the show keep up the good work all right I'm Sinan from Chicago. I'm uh, calling about uh, the Neil Young album. Uh, I feel like if all rock and roll ended in 1979 with Hey Hey My My Into the Black, I feel like it would have been kind of a fitting end.
it's a really good bookend to both an album and a decade when you think about it. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.